Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by Tim O'Reilly. We're sitting outside in Cambridge at the Computer Labs. You might hear a hum in the background. Tim is here to give a talk on the WTF economy. Tim is a tech publisher, but also an entrepreneur, and I hope he's okay with me saying this, a guru as well. WTF stands for what you think it stands for, and it also stands for what's the future. And Tim has been warning people for a while that the world is changing much faster than we appreciate, and the way we organize our societies, how we work, how we play, how we live, is going to change very, very dramatically very soon. So if we could start by talking about jobs and how you think that's going to change. You wrote a while back that we tend to think of how we work as fixed, and you drew the analogy with Victorian England, where people look at an economy and think it needs child labor, it needs these working conditions because that's the way that work works. But it's not true. And lots of the things that we think are fixed are actually very fluid. So what are our equivalents of that? What are the things that we think we need in order to have a functioning economy and society that actually we don't need and we need to start thinking about different ways of doing it? That's sort of an interesting framing. Let me try to come at it a little bit differently. The first thing I would say is that we have to get rid of the idea of the job as something you acquire from someone else. We have to stop thinking about jobs and we have to start thinking about work. Because ultimately, technology, as my friend Nick Hanauer says, technology is the solution to human problems. We won't run out of work until we run out of problems. But what's happened in our economy is that we have come to think that Basically, work is designed to improve the financial outcomes of companies. You know, that ultimately, when we look at technology, we're saying, well, great, we can, do with, we can do the same old work with fewer people. But the future comes when we do new kinds of work. And if you look at the history of technology, the increased wealth of society beyond the bounty that nature provides comes from increased productivity. And that increased productivity comes from tools. You know, whether that's back to stone axes and fire and the wheel, all the way up to the latest computer technology. So the function of technology is to help us solve new problems, to make more with what we have. And somewhere along the way, and I think it was probably about 40 years ago, we got this bad idea. And the bad idea was the idea of shareholder capitalism you know this idea that if you just took care of the shareholders and you align the goals of management with the goals of shareholders companies would become wealthier and everybody else would become wealthier but it didn't work out that way because ultimately that led us down the path of viewing people as a cost to be eliminated rather than as an asset to be used to do things that were previously impossible. And in the best companies, you still see people trying to do hard new things. You know, Amazon is a great example, pushing forward with uh, robots, for example. And 
everybody would think, well, they've now got 45,000 robots in their warehouses. And they're talking about drones and self-driving cars. They're trying to get rid of all the people. But they're not. They're actually hiring more people than they ever did before. What they're doing is they're saying, wow, with all this technology, we can get so efficient that we can actually get you your products today, the same day. They're basically doing business the way it ought to be done, which is, oh, we have new capabilities. Let's use them to do new things. Whereas so many companies, it's purely, well, let's improve the efficiency so we can drive the profits, so we can drive the stock price. But we also have a problem that so many of those companies are also gaming their stock prices, doing things like stock buybacks or various kinds of ways of manipulating earnings so that they look good, even, you know, sort of, quote, fake news. You know, I would make the case that, for example, Uber's talk about self-driving cars and their investments in self-driving cars are a kind of fake news. They're basically signaling to the market, we're a player here, we're a player, when in fact they're way behind and it doesn't really matter to their business. It reminds me a little bit from early in my career, early in the internet, we had created the first commercial website. It was called GNN, the Global Network Navigator. And I wanted to keep my company private. I saw that the web was growing very fast and I couldn't keep up, so I decided to sell it instead. And I sold it to AOL. I thought, well, they were going to invest in this because they really believed in the Internet. But instead, they were just signaling to the market, hey, we're an Internet company. They bought you know, four or five companies, said, we're an Internet company. But they didn't really understand what it meant to be an Internet company. They were a dial-up communications company, and that was still their big bet. And they didn't really believe in the web. You know, Microsoft didn't really believe in the web. And along came a set of companies that did believe in it, you know, like Amazon and Yahoo and Google and so on. And I think that, you know, we see that today. You know, Uber is saying we're a self-driving car company when, in fact, they're not. Now, Amazon, I think, is a self-driving car company because they really understand what they're going to do with it. Anyway, again, I think Uber will find their way because in a lot of ways, Uber does teach us a huge amount about the future of work. One of the things I've thought a lot about is what do we learn from companies like Uber about the nature and structure of employment in today's world? And there's a really interesting contrast between companies like Uber and, say, traditional employment. And that is the fact that people are, in fact, independent contractors. They come and go when they want, and they're managed by an algorithm. And a lot of people look at that and they say, well, this isn't really good. You know, traditional employment is better. But I go, well, actually, you have to look at how traditional employment is changing as well. Because traditional employment uh, is also has people managed by algorithm increasingly. You know, if you work for a fast food joint or a high street retailer or a big chain store, you have a scheduling algorithm, except that that one tells you when to show up, whether you like it or not, and if you don't show up, you're fired. So you look at this and you go, well, there's two algorithms, and one of them is better than the other for the worker. Then the question is, well, people go, well, what about benefits and so on? You go, well, that's, yeah, that might be a problem, but let's fix it. You know, as opposed to let's not do it. I look at the analogies that we have with something like Google and the media landscape. You know, Google did it differently than the previous media companies. And there were lots of complaints, you know, like that somehow they were cheating. And people make the same point about companies like Uber. You know, they're not playing by the same rules. 
but it's pretty clear that Google playing by its rules and Amazon playing by its rules have really delivered enormous value. And I think that companies like Uber can too. So are we geared up to switch from a world of jobs to a world of work? Because in a way you're describing there's the job yeah. version of this future, yeah. still algorithms in charge, yeah. but it's constrained. Yeah. And there's the work version, which yeah. has more freedom attached to it. It's sometimes called yeah. the gig economy, yeah. in which people maybe move from different kinds of work on their own rhythm. Mm-hmm. But it's a huge shift. It's a psychological shift, but it's also a structural shift. And there are some companies that are leading the way. Mm-hmm. But are you worried that the broader social structure is set up to deal with the change at this speed, at this pace, from jobs to work? I don't think the speed of the change is the issue. I think the fundamental issue, which is leading to all the political cataclysms, is back to this idea that we have optimized our economy for financial interests. And, you know, again, I I know less about the labor economy in the UK, but in the US, for example, we kneecapped unions, we basically aligned management incentives with shareholders. There's a whole lot of laws that we put in place that tilted the playing field towards this shareholder value above workers, shareholder value above the environment, shareholder value above society as a whole. And that's clearly wrong. And I think just periodically, you know, the economy needs to go through a reset. There's a guy named Mark Blythe who wrote a really fascinating piece in Foreign Affairs where he talked about after World War II, the guiding principle of the economy was full employment. And that, of course, was because they learned the lesson of what went wrong after World War I. You know, they came back and the returning veterans were beggared. The countries that had been devastated by war were beggared and the economy went really south. And then we had World War II and they went, oh, we're not going to make those same mistakes again. So we had 40 years of prosperity, you know, where we basically said, oh, we have to keep people employed. Uh, We have to rebuild, you know, the world. And then kind of that ran out of steam in some sense, you know, where people started saying, well, you know, maybe we don't need to do all those things. And this idea that, well, actually, the what we should really be doing is optimizing for shareholder value. And we've had this sort of financialized world for the last 40 years, which has increased income inequality, which has caused companies to stop focusing on the broader needs of society and or too many companies. Uh, and we're now getting the end game of that. And we've got to, we've got to have a reset. And that's why I kind of look for that next economy. And for me, the heart of the next economy is just to get back to basics. You know, we do work in order to make lives better for ourselves. And we believe in free market economies as a way to do that. But a marketplace has to work for its participants. If you think about just a, let's imagine a medieval fair, you know, a market town. And let's just say that the marketplace owner says, well, I'm going to tax this very highly. You know, the fees are going to be very large and so on. Your uh, market doesn't work so well. And the role of government, of course, is to help ensure that the marketplace is fair and that it works for society. I think we've forgotten how to do that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So the reset needs to come. That the version of the story that you just told, the, the Mark Bly story, is it's there's a disaster, essentially. Something goes catastrophically wrong, yeah. and you get a collective rethink. Mm-hmm. So we've had our disaster, in a way, the financial mm, crash, but it wasn't bad. Yeah, it was, exactly. Yeah. This is my question. It wasn't bad enough, right? Yeah, yeah. What it did was it didn't reset us. We papered over the cracks, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes, and right. now we've got the political crisis, in a sense, which is across Western democracies. But it's not obvious that that's going to be the reset. That looks mm-hmm. more like yeah. us stuck, basically. Our politics mm-hmm. is stuck. Yeah. So we need a reset without a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? Well, uh, to ask you a it, big it, question. Yeah, I would just say if, if history is any guide, you really only get a reset with a catastrophe. Right. And I, I sometimes think that climate change may be our savior in an odd way. Because when we wake up to it, we'll suddenly go, hmm, we got, we got to work on this. You know, you don't have any choice. But I, I hope that we could be smarter than that. Uh, I hope that we can. And that really is the point of my book. You know, the, the subtitle is WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. And the lessons I take from computer algorithm and algorithmic systems, here we are at Cambridge in the computer lab, is that they all have a fitness function, something that we're telling them to do. So if you look at Google, they tell all of the systems they build we're trying to get relevant search results. We're trying to get relevant ads. You look at Facebook, and Facebook said they're saying, well, we're trying to have this be engaging and social, and they didn't quite get it right, right? Because we have this whole fake news problem. But Mark's working on it. He's going, oh, well, that's not what I meant. You know, just like with Google. People were spamming Google early on, and they still are, and it's a constant battle for Google to go, no, we're really trying to get this right. Facebook, we're really trying to get this right. I guess I would just say, in our economy, policymakers have that same goal. They want to get it right, but they have, I think, just a bad idea. You know, so our current government, see if you like, would be the social equivalent of MySpace, not of Facebook. They're the social equivalent of AltaVista, not of Google, right? And we have to actually kind of get to that, whatever that next thing is, and then we have to start perfecting it. It's not going to be right all at once. Which is why when I look at a company like Uber, I go, think of it as Alta Vista. Don't think of it as this is the end game. We had these really bad search engines in the early 90s. And then we kind of figured it out. And I think in a lot of ways, the future of employment, we've got to figure it out. And I think there are design patterns that you can take from a company like Uber. You know, one of them is use technology to augment people. In the old days, you had... London Taxi Cab, the knowledge, one of the hardest exams in the world. And suddenly with GPS and smartphones, not only can you take relatively ordinary people and turn them into successful drivers, you can do this new thing that you couldn't do before, which is I could, you know, I walk out the train station in a completely strange country and I summon a car and it, you know, picks me up and he already knows where he's, we're going, and I don't have to pay. And it was just, you know, it's, it's much more convenient. And capacity has increased. Where I live in Oakland, California, before 
actually I use Lyft in the United States because it's a much more worker-friendly company. You couldn't get a taxi cab to save your life in Oakland. You'd call on the phone and maybe they'd show up 45 minutes later or maybe they wouldn't. That's true in most places. But now in the U.S., you can get a car on demand pretty quickly in really pretty out-of-the-way places. And that's kind of a, a design pattern for use technology to augment people so that they can do something that was previously impossible. And here's this amazing thing. We're, we're taking this network model that we thought just applied to the Internet, and we're starting to apply it to the physical world. And we're starting to use algorithms in much more creative ways. Well, the same thing is true in other areas as well. You know, as we start to think about, well, how would we make our power distribution more efficient? Well, we're going to probably use AI. I mean, DeepMind has already been doing some work on that area in Google data centers. How are we going to change the workflows in the hospitals? You know, well, guess what? Google DeepMind's working on that too. Changing workflows in the real world with a partnership between people and machines is this, I think, a frontier of capability. Yeah, algorithmic systems are power tools for the mind. We wouldn't have built the channel tunnel with picks and shovels, and we're not going to solve climate change without the help of some pretty serious AI, in my opinion. So the challenge then, you'll, you'll know that people will hear that, and part of what they'll hear is, so Google DeepMind will do it, so Google DeepMind will yeah. do it. And the fear is, to put it in political terms, you know, we've got a general election going on in this mm-hmm. country at the moment, and none of this is being talked about. No yeah. one expects politicians to talk about it. It would maybe be unrealistic in an election. But at some point, the politics does need to catch up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fear is, as you said, our current politics looks like it's been left behind by the, the versions yeah. of this that work. And we need a politics that matches that kind of dynamic, future-oriented yeah. use of tech. But the politics won't catch up. The fear that people have is that we're entering a world where we are so reliant on the people who are at the cutting edge of the technology, its design, also its ownership, to solve these problems. And the gap between that and policy solutions that are democratic or are legitimate for the voters is getting wider. I mean, I think that is a lot of people's fear, even if they, they accept the vision that we can do amazing things that we couldn't do 10, 20 years ago. The thing that's being left behind is, is politics. First thing I would say is that the steel line from my wife, Jennifer Polka, Uh, who started something called Code for America, she said, look, government is this vast ocean and politics is this little six-inch layer floating on top. Now, of course, it's become fashionable to refer to that as the deep state. Uh, But but, uh, effectively, government is a machine. And a lot of what we have been working on for the last better part of a decade, Jen and I and uh, many others, is how do we actually bring some of the best practices of tech into that deep state of government? How do you make government programs work in the same way that, say, Google will work? And what that means is not, well, we're going to use lots and lots of computers, because the essence of what I think tech really has to bring to government is the user design process, the measurement process. You know, when you look at a government program, typically, it's, as Tom Lusmore, who used to be at the UK Government Digital Service, was the COO there, said, uh, some policymaker said to him, I, I, now that I have been working with you guys, I realize that every policy I put out has been 500 pages of untested assumptions. You know, when a tech company has some idea, they build something and they try it out and it doesn't work and they change it right away. And they try that and then, you know, there's this constant iterative improvement. 
versus so much of what happens in government is somebody's idea and we never even try to figure out whether it worked or not. The best we can do is we'll maybe throw the bums out at the next election. And I think building something that's much more iterative that doesn't have to do with politics but has to do with execution. And so we've been working a lot in the U.S., and, and this, I think, is at least to some extent surviving the Trump transition, is really to build iterative policymaking. Jen worked a lot. She was the deputy CTO at the White House and on this idea of how do we start doing user research? How do we, when we have a policy, how do we test whether it works or not? How do we do it incrementally? Those sort of business lessons from tech and uh, applying them to the things that government does for us. But the biggest thing that I think is that we have to understand that government plays an essential role in our society. We have for too long bought into the idea that government is bad and business is good. And Bill Janeway likes to say it's a three-player game. Actually, it's between government businesses in the in the real economy and financial markets <laughs> and uh, that's a really missing piece that a lot of people don't understand because financial markets are not the same as the real market of goods and services and I think that uh, government has to be a counterweight but we don't have to use that counterweight with this sort of coarse populism that basically demonizes others we have to actually get much smarter about understanding what we're trying to accomplish and we have to test iteratively whether we are doing it. The biggest new capability that technology gives us is the capability of measurement. The fact that we can measure and understand uh, whether something is working or not. We began this series of Talking Politics with Yuval Harari and that was the much bleaker version of what this technology revolution means and we spent the last few weeks talking about an election which seems slightly trivial compared to the real forces that are driving change in the world now. Tim O'Reilly's book will be out in the autumn, The WTF Economy. We'll be back talking about the general election again next week and much more else besides. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. I really like to look back at the contrast between World War I and World War II. And the first time we punished the losers, went back to business as usual. And the second time, we kind of did it right. And we had a period of unparalleled world prosperity. And then we threw it away. And I think we have to go back and ask ourselves, what did we do? And some of the things that we did right in that period were... We did look for keeping people employed. We did look to tackle hard problems. I mean, you look at, say, Syria today, Italy looked like that. France looked like that. Germany looked like that. What did we do? We went and you know, invested colossal amounts of money rebuilding this devastated Europe. You look at what happened in Asia. You know, you know, here's Japan and Korea, all these places that were incredibly poor we lifted them up and we could do that again you know and we just have to get to it 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.